Hello, fellow nerds. Check out our network site, nerdsloth.com. You can also connect with us on social media like the Facebook, the Twitter, and the Instagram. If you like what you hear, look for Nerdsloth on Patreon and consider donating to help us continue delivering quality shows straight to your ears. If you'd like to help the shows out for free, head over to iTunes and write a heartfelt review. I mean it. Make me cry happy tears. But seriously, though, anything you can do really helps us out and we love you for it. Hey y'all, this is Jeff Ryder of Gravity Matters from Cloud Wrangler Comics, and you are listening to Adrian Has Issues, because you are smart. Hey everybody, welcome to Adrian Has Issues. I am super excited about today's episode. My guest is a comic book writer based out of Texas, and he has penned some really awesome comics like Archer and Armstrong, Buzzkill, Ghost Fleet, The Paybacks, and currently he wrote this really insanely awesome comic book called God Country from Image Comics, and he's here to talk about that and plus some other really fun stuff. So please give a warm welcome to Donnie Cates. Donnie, how's it going, man? Hey, how are you? I'm doing great. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So let's get right into it. God Country. I heard about this book a little bit on social networking prior to meeting you, and it was like funny. I didn't necessarily put two or two together that you were the writer. So I got a chance to read it last night, and um, if you don't mind me saying, holy shit. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, man. Uh, I don't know how spoilery we should get, but... I figured, you know what, I won't get into the main story, but I figure we should at least, you know, do a little bit of a pitch, just let, let people know what it's about. Totally. Yeah, 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 totally. God Country uh, is a book from Image Comics, drawn by my friend Jeff Shaw, who did uh, Buzzkill and the Paybacks alongside me, and Jason Wordy uh, does our... Um, all the, he makes it pretty with the colors is what I'm trying to say. And, uh, Gerardo Zaffino is doing our variants and he's amazing. Um, and John J. Hill is doing all of our fonts and, uh, making sure it also looks cool. I'm just rambling now, but anyway, God Country is a book that I've actually been working on for a really long time. At the same time, both intensely personal and small, but somehow also manages to be the craziest, biggest story that we've ever told. It's about this old man who has Alzheimer's uh, out in West Texas, and his family has uh, moved out there to take care of him and is trying desperately to take care of him. Because he used to be a very sweet man, a very kind man, but due to his, um, his illness, it's kind of changed him. It's kind of made him confused and angry and just not the man that he's supposed to be. Right. And so if that story by itself isn't enough, well, then a giant magical tornado rolls into town and destroys everything. And in the wake of that tornado, there's a 12-foot indestructible uh, enchanted talking sword named Valifax. And as long as the old man, whose name is Emmett, as long as he is holding on to that sword, he's okay. His mind is back. His mind is returned. The only problem is that the owners of that sword, the people who it actually belongs to, uh, they would very, very much like it back. <laughs> to which he would probably say, 
uh, from my cold dead hands. <laughs> <laughs> nice reference, by the way. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so something I did appreciate about this story is the fact that even with all this going on, it's a very personal story. You know, it feels like that kind of came from someplace. You know, you live in Texas. So what was the inspiration behind creating this story? Well, um, I'm actually, I'm uh, first of all, the Texas thing. I'm actually not from West Texas. I'm from a little town outside of Dallas called Garland which is really only famous for one thing, which is being the inspiration for Arlen in King of the Hill. Oh, get out of here. (laughs) Yeah, if you've ever seen King of the Hill, that's where I grew up, and it is exactly like that. That's equal parts amazing, but kind of disappointing at the same time. (laughs) It's weird. Um, But okay, so West Texas, for anyone who's ever been out there, is such a haunting and magical place. It's a place that's... It's virtually unchanged since presumably the dawn of time. And Jeff Shaw, the series artist, said it best once when Jeff and I actually went out to West Texas to do some research and to try and get a feel for it, you know. And Jeff said that if you were to see giant, like 20 foot tall Kirby gods fighting out there, you'd be surprised, but you wouldn't be shocked. It looks like a place where that would happen. Like, it looks like this ethereal, weird, just, it looks like a land of giants. Um, and so when I started kind of putting together this this book, I mean, it was the only place that made any sense. As far as where the actual conflicts of the book come from, I think it's fairly obvious for anyone who's reading it that there's it comes from a place of truth. And then it was always very important for me to ground this series Firstly and foremost, with this family, because it kind of is a fantasy book, right? But for those things to happen and for those things to have any weight to them, when these, you know, magical talking swords and all these fantastical tornadoes start showing up, for any of those to have any sort of hold over you and to hold onto your heart, it needs to start from someplace that we can, we as the audience can grasp and, and really feel, you know? Right, exactly. And so, um, yeah, I mean, so to answer your question, to be very honest about it, um, around two years ago, I went through a very, uh, a very profound health issue and I'm okay now. Everything's totally fine. But at the time it didn't really seem like I was going to be okay for a while there. And, you know, whenever you go through something like that, you know, whenever you go through something where you kind of. I don't know, come into contact with your own mortality, right? It drags up all these new feelings, these these feelings that you have never had. I mean, I turned 30 and like almost immediately almost died. Oh my so, God. <laughs> that's that's <yeah>. terrible. <laughs> like the same year I turned 30, I literally almost died. So, you know, you start, th- you know, you, you go through your 20s thinking that you're, you know, invincible and that, you know, all this stuff. And then something like this happens and and you've read the first issue. And so people who are hearing this and who haven't, this probably won't make a lot of sense until they do read it. But the same year that I almost died, my brother had a baby. So in the same year I was presented with my own mortality and this new little ball of hope and sunshine that had my last name on it. Right. Right. So you put those two experiences together and God country is what comes out of it. A story about 
the aging and the new, right? About birth and death and about being reborn and about family and about blood. As I'm reading this, I'm like, wow, this doesn't seem like your typical story. And I mean that in, you know, obviously a completely positive way because, you know, very character driven, you know, very deep. And it clearly came from not only just a place of I have lived this, but in a way, I guess also kind of an appreciation of sort of where you came from. I'm a sucker for Texas. I <laughs> any way I can sneak Texas into a book, I pretty much always have actually. Ghost Fleet, Buzzkill, The Paybacks, um, and a few other of my books all either take place in Texas or have a nod to Texas. Which makes sense. I mean, they tell you, you know, if you're gonna write something, you know, write what you know. So it's like, hey, why not? Yeah, that's the thing, man. I mean, Texas is just so I don't know if you've seen a map, but Texas is enormous. Yeah, uh, it's so pretty gigantic. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's most of the map. Most of it is Texas. There's just lots of places to tell stories. And in fact, I, I can't say what it is now, but I have a new thing that also takes place in Texas. So <laughs> I will we'll follow up and tell you about that then. <laughs> Very cool. Something you did mention earlier, and I kind of noticed for myself, once you actually get to the, the twist of the book. Very Kirby-esque. Oh, yeah, definitely. And like I thought, like, wow, like what an awesome twist, because now I'm not even thinking of the cover itself, because I'm thinking about the title, and I was like, okay, God Country's out in Texas. And at first, I thought maybe <laughs> this is going to be like this very sort of like character study of, I don't know, you know, rural areas and being very faith-based until you realize, <laughs> oh, that's not the God they're talking about. <laughs> nope, not even a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> so at the end of the book, I like I earlier, like I said, the show, like my reaction was holy shit because I'm like, okay, I see the cover, I'm getting it on, I was like, all right, sweet. So what exactly is happening here? And you know, I'm not gonna lie, it was a little hard to read because you know I've had relatives who, you know, they kind of have suffered dementia and things like that. And yeah, I remember yeah, how the personalities can change, and you know, it, it was very rough. But I'm saying to myself this poor guy because now he's torn between his new family and obviously you know his father which as somebody who clearly seems to be very family oriented like you can't just leave somebody in that kind of state yeah definitely at the same time though those type of situations and of course now knowing what i know with your own health that also creates a lot of emotions so as we see with the wife she's trying her best and you'd imagine this is something that she's also had to deal with and kind of reaches a breaking point where you know she kind of just couldn't do it anymore Right. I'm sure she loved him just as he does, but yet, you know, sometimes people to kind of react in a different way. And, you know, I've even seen that in my own family when it comes to things like terminal illness. Roy and Janie are just in this impossible place where there's just no right answer. And, and neither of them are right and neither of them are wrong. You know, it's not wrong for Roy to want to take care of his father. But and it's also not wrong for Janie to not want her child to be exposed to all of that, right? And so they're both in this very conflicting place. And then, boy, uh, things just do not get any easier when a talking sword shows up, <laughs> you know? <laughs> There's this great kind of cathartic moment when Emmett is back. He's home again. He knows who everyone is, and he's okay, and... And, okay, well, one problem solved, except, well, <laughs> there's there's maybe some bigger problems coming along right after that that could, 
well, not could, are going to be maybe a bigger problem. And something I thought was very profound about it is, you know, I guess maybe that's sort of the pretentious jerk in me where, you know, I see it of like, of course, the sword that just, you know, falls on Earth and, you know, he's obviously back. But I almost kind of saw that as almost even like some like really interesting symbolism. Oh, yeah. You know, showing that he has this condition, but this doesn't necessarily define him. Like, he's more than this. And I kind of got a little choked up about when I was reading. Well, that's the reaction we were hoping for, obviously. I mean... It goes back to what we were talking about earlier about rooting this story really in family, because when the book starts out, right, it is about, first and foremost, it is a book about a family dealing with forces beyond their control, right? Right. It's about a family dealing with this illness that is something that cannot be ignored and can only be fought and only be dealt with head on. And then as the book goes on, it's just that same conflict. That central core conflict never changes. It's just that the forces that are beyond their control that can only be dealt with change forms, right? And so when you take that idea of this illness and you embody it as a force that is trying to take things away from them, right? right. Well, then that's, that's what these gods are. Because then the sword becomes who he is and the thing that allows him to be there with his family. And then these gods then become just an extension of this illness that are coming to try and take it away from him. Once that transformation happens, you know, the granddaughter, she's like, look, my grandmother's back and, you know, she's running to him with open arms. On this end, you know, they're like, hey, you know, this is the man that we knew. This is the man that we love. But, of course, the thing that is keeping him together is the thing that's going to get them all killed. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and that's kind of the line that the rest of the book walks. It's that... It's this line of, you know, Roy is this character who is, who is, like I said, in this, in this impossible spot because he's stuck firmly between being a father and a son, right? Correct. He's, he's, he's trying to be a good son to his father, but at the same time, he's trying to balance and be a good father to his daughter and a good, you know, partner to his wife, right? And so as these things come along, Emmett, of course, is overjoyed because he's back and he knows them and he can hug his family and he knows who they are and he can love them and all these things. But at the same time, I mean, the family is not blind to the idea of how fucking insane this all is. <laughs> yeah. Not blind to it. I mean, Roy even, I think he, if I'm quoting my own book correctly, he even <laughs> says, like, Dad, Dad, it's the greatest thing that's ever happened that you're back, but you know, what the fuck? You know? <laughs> <laughs> And then, you know, as it goes on, it becomes this thing that, um, you know, I don't want to spoil too much, but, but, but that choice, that, that idea of, of what you leave for your family and this idea of letting go and the appropriate time to let go is very central to the entire book. I mean, it's a little on the fucking nose that if he literally lets go of the sword, It'll all be over, right? right? So the whole book is about learning how to let go and win. And it's not just him and the sword. It's Roy and his dad. It's Janie and Roy. It's, you know, Janie and her daughter. It's everyone. It's everyone. It's, a, it's this idea of 
when is the appropriate time to let go with love? I think what I love most about the story is the juxtaposition between having this very personal, very intense family drama, but then you also have this Thor level throwdown where your main character essentially is like, I have this massive sword, I have this power. I want you to come try to take this, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, that's 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 why I always uh, I kind of preface this book by saying that, you know, I think I've, I I said it earlier. I mean, it's it's both the most personal thing that Jeff and I have ever done. But at the same time, man, I mean, shit goes down and shit goes down hard. I mean, it's a big story. The scope of it is the biggest thing I've ever done in my life. I mean, because we. We get into the gods and we get into where they live and the gods' realms and the backstory of them and how Valifax came to them and what it means to them and how it relates to the family. And I mean, but, you know, again, it all it all hinges on that family element. But, yeah, man, shit goes down so hard. There's a reason that this the storytelling part of it, like the person in the book who is telling you this story. There's a reason they're telling it as if it's a tall tale. Right. Because I wanted this story to feel like that. I wanted it to feel like a um, Paul Bunyan kind of a story, you know, like uh, Pecos Pete who rode the tornado. You know, I wanted it to be this. I've been describing it as a Kirby fourth world Texan tall tale. That is probably the best description ever because it fits it perfectly. <laughs> like, you know, when it starts out, you know, and it's funny because music dictates most of the things in my life. So as the story starts out, you know, I'm thinking of it from like, you know, Johnny Cash kind of hurt sort of way. But by, sure, but yeah, by yeah. the end of the story, I'm literally about to like pop on a monomarth and just some like really insane, like <laughs> yeah. epic metal. Dun, 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 dun. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, absolutely. I'm like, oh, that that's great. So again, like I can't wait to check out the rest of this. And I know we'll try not to jump too far ahead, but I also think that is really cool that even having this family, you know, you approach it from the other side because the being who is trying to take the sword back, you know, they have a backstory too. So Right, yeah. And I you know, I, I'm a big fan of this idea of there are no bad guys. There's just different points of view. Like, bad guys never think they're the bad guys, unless they're, like, the Red Skull, who just love it, right? <laughs> uh, like, uh, bad guys are never, th they always think they're doing the right thing, you know? And what we will come to find out, that God that we meet at the end, he's doing things for a very specific reason. And that reason, while incredibly fantastical, and it's very Jack Kirby-ish, you know? but his core motivation for doing things, we will come to find out is not that alien of an idea. The reasons that he does things are very closely tied to the Quinlan family and their motivations for doing things, if that makes any sense. Because if you think about it, you know, Valifax obviously has powers, right? right. Valifax obviously is a thing that would probably be pretty damn important <laughs> to and i'll just say this and i'm trying to I'm trying to step around spoilers but it's the kind of thing that would be important to any family no matter what kind they are if that right. makes any sense no that makes perfect sense and you know you talked about villains uh, you know red skull uh notwithstanding that you know those are always my favorite villains because it's 
easy to do a story where, you know, and as someone who, you know, has loved superheroes, it's like, okay, you have a hero, they have powers of some kind, and, you know, there's an antagonist, someone who's trying to keep them from doing the things they want to do, but then it's like, okay, they're trying to take over the world, and I'm like, all right, so how are they doing that? Why are they doing that? Because right, yeah, I yeah. always thought it's boring. It's like, okay, I'm taking over the world, but I'm like, okay, so then you get rid of the hero, you blow up all these people, so what are you just basically ruling on a pile of rubble? Well, that's always the funny thing. <laughs> is when bad guys are like, I'll destroy the entire world. And you're like, in what world do you live on? Yeah, it's like, oh, wait. Like, <laughs> I didn't think that far. Look, I have very short-term oh, right. goals. <laughs> of course, yeah. Yeah, I always really like that. I always like the reveal of, uh, we did it in the paybacks. There's this bad guy in the paybacks who this entire time was, you know, doing all these shadowy things. And then when we learned what her reasonings for doing so Everyone was just like, oh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense, actually. Huh. huh. I'll be damned. Like, <laughs> That's why I always love Dr. Doom or even like a Magneto, and especially Magneto, whom as a kid, I'm like, oh, man, look at this guy. You know, at one point, he's killing all these people because they're oppressing mutants or, hey, he's pulling out Wolverine's adamantium. and that guy's a jerk. But then it's like, shit, I got older. I'm like, you know what? I hate to say it, but this guy might actually have some very valid points about things. Well, Magneto's <laughs> biggest problem, I feel was marketing and branding because he did call that team the brotherhood of evil mutants so (laughs) maybe you shouldn't have led with the word evil if you were trying to make a profound statement about bigotry (laughs) yeah i wonder if maybe in his mind it's like look people won't respond to what charles xavier was doing because it's like you know peace and love that's boring it's not working out so i'm just gonna put (laughs) satan horns on my helmet and then (laughs) it's gonna kind of figure it out from there oh it's the same thing with the empire in the original star wars trilogy we never actually see the empire doing anything bad we never see it. Uh, okay, they blow up Alderaan. I was about to sure. say. <laughs> but that is completely in response. We never see them attack anyone first. All we see are, are, is like Luke and his crew attacking them, and they attack in response, right? So right. I'm of the contention that the Empire is just fine. Because, by the way, every single time that that we see a planet that is under the Empire rule, it's not like there's like you know, like people dying in the streets. Like it looks great. Like cloud city looks great. (laughs) Everything (laughs) seems to be going just fine. It's just that the empire has a marketing and a branding problem. You start calling (laughs) shit death star and putting on all black. You guys, of course they're going to attack you. (laughs) That's so funny. My friend and I, um, we had done a podcast, which unfortunately just never got aired because well, we got busy and lives and kids sure, and things like life that. Sure, life happened, yeah. Right, but um, we had this great discussion, and the bottom line was the Jedis aren't necessarily inherently good, and the Sith aren't inherently evil. Well, okay, it's- hold on. The Jedis are zealots. They're, 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 they're as close to terrorists as the Star Wars world has, and I will stand by that. What kind of monsters? Okay, they tell us... <laughs> That Jedis are like super monks who train in peace and they only wear these lightsabers in case of, you know, like severe, severe problems or like, you know, to defend other people or, you know, if someone mouths off in a bar. (laughs) Because there's like a million different ways he could have handled that guy mouthing off in the bar, including, you know, Jedi mind control. Nope. 
cut his arm off. We'll worry about that later. They're bullies and they're thugs. <laughs> well, I would almost argue that, you know, Obi-Wan having basically spent, you know, his formative years having to like live in a desert watching his kid bumble his way into heroism. He's like, look, I might get a chance to actually do some really cool shit. And, <laughs> and there's no Jedi order that's basically to come down on me to be like, look, you shouldn't have done that. Because yeah. honestly, if you look at that shot right after he cuts that dude's arm off, he almost looks like he's just so hyped he's like i just did yeah that. take that motherfucker <laughs> yeah totally dude totally hey you know what the biggest the biggest irony is you know this is such a dumb joke you're gonna have to indulge me on this one all right no problem you know how oh what's his face anakin has that awful line about how much he hates sand right the biggest irony is is that when he destroyed alderaan he got sand everywhere <laughs> <laughs> literally everywhere <laughs> it's the worst joke ever no but, but it, yes but it, it makes perfect sense and i and i thought about the empire and yes they probably do a lot of screwed up things but i also you know going back to other villains like let's say dr doom where if you're i don't know like a dictator or some sort of evil warlord now you could intimidate people like you could basically rule over them you know hold a gun to everybody's head freak them out you know, but eventually, yeah. you know, like we find out in multiple stories that in doing that, people eventually rebel. But if you pretty much like, you know, Doom did in a lot of those books when he ruled that area, you know, people loved him. You know, he basically would go into the Yeah, streets. he did a great job. Yeah. So it's like at that point, who would ever want to rebel when they were given so much? And I'd imagine the Empire yeah. did the same thing. They're saying like, look, stormtroopers, look, we just created millions of jobs, you know? <laughs> Well, aren't they? Okay, all right. They're all clones, though. They didn't create anything. Well, okay, the originals were clones, though, but I always argued that the ones in the original trilogy were they were hired. That's why they suck so bad, because essentially it's like, okay, the clone army thing didn't really work out after a while. Or they were just all cloned off of someone who was not that great at their job, because Jango Fett, not that great of his job. And that is a gene that he passed down to his son because no one has ever been worse at a job than Boba Fett. <laughs> Terrible. Oh, see, I always just argued that, like I said, those the, the original Stormtroopers weren't even clones. Like these are basically guys where it's like, I'm trying to deal with my family. It's wartime. Jobs aren't easy to come by. So, you know, Galactic Empire is like, hey, look, work for us. Steady nine to five job, decent pay. You could, you know, work for your family. And it's like, cool. Who wouldn't want to do that? I probably would just be like a guard or something, you know, just watching some sort of bunker. Yeah. But then it's like, wait a minute. None of us know how to shoot. Like, don't worry about it. Nine to ten times, you probably won't. <laughs> That's never going to come in handy. It's never going to come up ever. I mean, th that's the thing is I mean, that to me is further evidence of how much Luke and the rebellion are just terrorists. Because, again, you never see the Empire do anything bad. Like the Alderaan thing. Let me just wipe that out of your head really quick. And I know how we're like super on topic right, right now. But but look, so. Alderaan was attacking a terrorist cell. Now, if you agree with it or not, the, the United States does that all the time. Now, if you if you take out, oh, I'm getting political, I'm going to get in trouble. But look, whether or not you agree with it or not, they did that in defense of themselves, right? <laughs> right. Everything else, like Hoth, like, like dude, they landed in a occupied empire zone. Of course they were going to Get attacked. You can't go there. But in the original trilogy, you never, not one time, does the Empire 
strike first. Now, they strike back, certainly, but they never strike first because they're just minding their own beeswax, doing trade embargoes or whatever the hell happens in that <laughs> Senate. That's the most boring thing of all time. But anyway, I'm a, I am a, uh, I'm taking the bold and controversial stance <laughs> of defending the empire. <laughs> but no, it makes sense, and yet it's it's funny. Like back going back to that discussion with um I had with my friend, but you know, as boring as let's say the prequel stuff was, you know, that pretty much is the bulk of it. Now, by the time we see the trilogy, you know, we're seeing this conflict between Luke and his father, and you know, he's right. trying to bring it back. So of course, we're seeing this very you know go you know I guess it does kind of go back to comic this very personal struggle between you know father and son. Exactly. Just like God Country <laughs> coming out in January from Image Comics. <laughs> nice. But so you're seeing this very personal conflict, but then you're thinking to yourself, all right, so how did the actual, you know, basically it comes down to, I guess, extremism, I guess, even from religious case of the Jedi and the Sith. But yet, totally. again, as I kind of was theorizing, is that neither of them are necessarily evil, but you pretty much have, you know, the rebellion who would be siding with the Jedi and the Empire side with the Sith. But okay, so though you basically use these, you know, religious ideals for the war, and, you know, there's parallels to that in real life, but we don't have to go into that. But, you know, the idea that if anything, the explosion of Alderaan might have just been, you know, Anakin being like, you know what, fuck Bail Organic. He took my daughter. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Totally. That's the thing that the prequels really did was they made him blowing up Alderaan. Like, they made that moment petty, which is such a hard <laughs> to do. Like, they made destroying this planet just an extension of this little brat that was like, screw Alderaan. So good. Because oh, <laughs> it's like God, he obviously was sucks. aware of Bale, and it's like, look, I don't like this dude. Oh, yeah. And, you know, you we obviously figure out that the guy, even after everything that happened, still felt the presence of his children. So he's like, wait a minute. Even if he didn't necessarily know her by any particular name, I'm sure even prior to us getting into the story, he had to have known that Leia was probably his offspring. Well, yeah, I mean, but you know who didn't know that? George Lucas, because he definitely made that shit up on the fly. Oh, yeah. And I think they've even confirmed oh, yeah. that. But of course, I'm all doing a second hand because I know someone's going to listen to this and be like, hold on a second. Yeah, there's this moment where like Darth Vader like senses like he's like, you know, he senses that Luke is near and like he senses that like Obi-Wan is near. And it's just like, dude, you just had a whole conversation with your actual daughter. Nothing. No sensing? No sense? No? No? All right. Fine. <laughs> but uh, I guess at the end of the day, though, it's still politically motivated, so he's probably figuring, look, I can't blow this by talking down to my daughter. Yeah. Have you seen, really quick, completely even more off topic, have you seen Star Wars, but with Darth Vader um, dubbed with Arnold Schwarzenegger? Yes. Oh, my gosh. It's so funny. Oh, God. It's the funniest thing I've ever seen in my life. When he's uh, when he's interrogating Leia, and he goes, uh, he goes, who is your daddy and what does he do? Oh, God. It's so funny. <laughs> So and not funny. for nothing, though, I love that whole bit in Empire Strikes Back, you know, when they're on Cloud City, you know, Han opens the door and he sees Vader, you know, of course, he's firing at him and Vader does that very badass. Yeah. And, you know, that whole exchange after the fact of getting him carbon frozen, like, you know, as someone who's as strong as the, in the force as Anakin was, 
And again, I love how we're bringing this back to your book, though. But, you know, it's like he had to have known. <laughs> it's like, okay, at this point, he knows that this is his daughter. And I'm sure he had probably felt that she then had feelings for Han. And it's like, look, who the hell? You're like, I just found her daughter. And now she's going to basically, you know, end up with this asshole. No, screw that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean I'll tell you what, though. Of all of my problems with the original trilogy, of which there are many, I tell you what, that moment that Han Solo sees Vader and doesn't think twice about it and just starts firing into his face is stone cold the baddest moment of the entire thing. Like the coolest shit ever. Right. But a terrible way to meet your future (laughs) father-in-law. But I tell you what, dude, what if it had just, what if he, what if it had worked? What if Han had just shot him right in the forehead and it just rolled credits? Like, well, that's a better movie to me. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Oh, basically, not even just, like, any reactions? Like, he just guns him down and then just, like, roll yeah. credits after that? and then Han just turns around and just, like, I don't know what all the fuss was about. Like, the guy's, like, yeah, he's, he's scary, but he's not bulletproof. I don't know what you guys are all... <laughs> it's like in Harry Potter. I always thought it was weird that Harry Potter didn't... Like, I get it, right? It's a kid's film, and I get it and all that stuff, right? But, like, I understand that, like, uh, Voldemort's a big, powerful dude. But, like, have we tried bullets? Like, have we tried just shooting him with an actual gun? If the answer is yes, absolutely cool. Moving on. But let's at least talk about it. Let's at least talk about the idea that we can just go and get a gun and shoot Voldemort in the mouth, right? Now, like, I, I don't know Harry Potter. Like, I mean, I, I watched them and I know a little bit, obviously, from friends who are very big fans. But, mm-hmm. I mean, did they even allow firearms in that world? Well, dude, it doesn't matter what they allow or not. They, <laughs> they certainly, they, the fucking stakes are super critical. Certainly, they don't allow Voldemort to fucking kill babies, right? I think the time for decorum is pretty much over. Let's at least try. Let's lead with bullets and then follow up with magic, I think is a fucking strong start. Like, they but, go into Dumbledore's study, and it turns out that he's got, like, this antique Ruger. Like, apparently how, he just sees a guy that collects guns. <laughs> how amazing would that be if there's, like, a big wand battle and everything's going insane, and then Dumbledore just, like, rips out an AK-47 out of his robe and it just finishes it. And he's just like, look, yeah, I know. Look, I know, but the muggles do some shit well. <laughs> they're good at killing people. They're not very smart, but they're good at killing stuff. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> oh, gosh. Of course, you get me talking about Star Wars, and then, of course, it all goes from there. And, yeah, like, I feel bad, like, and I get the initial struggle, but every time I watch those movies, you know, like, I do the thing where I start sympathizing. Not even sympathizing, no, that's a terrible word. No, but I mean, like, I, you know, like, but the thing about villains who have legit motivations, and we get it. It's very boring, as we found out in the original, uh, in the prequel trilogy, rather. But we find out that, you know, it's all just trays and tariffs and, you know, taxation. Yeah. Oh, my God. Every single time that there was a a scene in the prequels where they're talking about trade embargoes and tariffs, all I could do was just like, you guys, outside there are space wizards. What are we doing? What are you (laughs) filming right now? There's space wizards outside. (laughs) But anyway, I I feel like you were trying to go back into God Country. I just... (laughs) No, I, I wanted to because I feel so, you know, it, it's hard, though, because Star Wars 
even after all these years, it just still comes back to the end. You know, we're seeing it even with episode seven that, you know, and this is now scary because we're seeing this in real time now where you're essentially seeing, you know, Nazi sympathizers who have a oh, God, yeah. still a lot of basically a lot of resources who are pretty much just trying to recreate the same battles just for shits and giggles, essentially, because again, there's really no empire. A republic is standing, so there's already a seat in government and you know planted. So, and if anything, they've almost become their own resistance, and it's fucking frightening. <laughs> Let me tell you what's frightening right now in the political climate concerning, particularly me in this book. I am trying to market a book called God Country about Texas with the first name Donnie. You know how hard that is right now. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even think about that. Oh, yeah, dude. Oh, yeah. Like, if people are talking about my book on Twitter, I can't search for it. I can't. Because typing in Donnie God Country Texas, oh, oh my God. It is horrendous. So, let me just tell, for anyone who is hearing this podcast, if you would like to talk about my book, please use hashtag God Country Comic so that I can find it, because I don't have the willpower to search for that anymore. Because the level of horrendous, racist, redneck bullshit that pops up when you put all those things in there is... Oh, and also, just a, a very quick disclaimer. My legal birth name is Donnie, not Donald. I am not Donald. Well, that's good, because that's just kind of an awkward name anyway. Even prior to everything going on, you know, it's like, oh, so you're like the duck. I'm like, no, I'm not like the duck. Well, and well, yeah, dude, playing turtles as a kid, I always had to be Donatello, and it's, it's the worst turtle. Wait, turtle hold on. Michelangelo. Oh, contraire, my friend. I know. Well, hold on Donatello now, hold on. is the As no. an adult, as an adult, I can appreciate Donatello for his intelligence. Okay. But as a kid, nunchucks, dude. <laughs> like I completely agree with you. I just love we we basically had this great to be out of Star Wars, but we're gonna fall apart at Ninja Turtles. Yeah. Friendship over. Right? No, no, I can completely agree with you, dude. Donatello is one of the superior turtles, and I'm not even that big of a of a Mikey kid these days, anyway. But as a kid, dude, nunchucks, come on. True, but even as a kid, like I pretty much felt for Raphael the entire way, and oh, even Raph's as a best, child. Yeah. Even as a child, I'm like, you know what? I probably shouldn't be this ornery, but it just happened that way. But Donatello yeah, just real. is amazing for the sole purpose of he re he legitimately, you know, and I guess you know to kind of pull even like the it's always sunny reference. Like he is like the true wild card. Oh yeah, total wild card. Yeah, because <laughs> you know there's times like you know I think about like that first movie you know with uh, Corey Feldman where Donatello was essentially like Michelangelo Part Two. Oh, yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah, well, the thing is, what's great about Donatello is that he's smart enough to know that sometimes the answer is science, right? Right. But more times than not, the answer is Bostaff. Yeah, because I'm like, well, if you have a Bostaff, <laughs> you don't need the reason because you pretty much can whack it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the Foot Clan don't care about science, dog. They respond to Bostaff skills. <laughs> 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 oh, I just got that other reference there. That was cool. <laughs> that, was, that was awesome. Yeah, it's like I loved him for the fact that in that whole first movie, 
you know, anytime that Raphael and Leonardo, and don't, I love that, you know, that uh, conflict, but, you know, after a while it gets a little tired, but while they're going back and forth, as they always do, he and Mike Ledger are eating pork rinds, and it's my yeah, favorite yeah. scene ever, because he's basically like, fight, fight, it's like, kitchen, kitchen, like, we just are so over this. I'll tell you what, though, that, um, I, I, what did it come out in, like, 2011 or 2012, like, the all-CGI one? Oh, it's called, hell like, yeah. TNT? Hell yeah, dude. Raphael was a badass in that one. I like that one a lot. I love that movie, too. I actually watched that uh, last month because I'm going through my boxes because um, I moved uh, to Long Island with my girlfriend, so, of course, all my stuff's still, like, barely out of its boxes, but I had pulled out, like, this collection of, you know, like, the four movies, you know, in one, and so I'm like, you know, I hadn't watched the, the CGI one in a long time, so I sat down and, okay, the thing with the statues is kind of dumb. Like, all right, fine, that was for the right. kids, but that whole thing of Leonardo and Raphael just really just kind of, like, going there with totally. that fight like that yeah. was total fan service because i'm like look and he just flat out was like oh i'm better than you and leonardo was like wait really you're better hell no you're not <laughs> dude totally if that movie had any it was better than it really had any right to ever be absolutely like, it could have just been goofy for kids and shit but man Raphael was badass anyway so we should probably talk about yeah this. oh my god this <laughs> so um speaking of star wars so the reason Star Wars works, right, is because it's this grand, you know, space opera and all these big ideas, but the original films aren't about that, right? It's about Luke. So the best way to kind of distill those down, the, the reason that we that we buy everything else is because we go through Luke's eyes and we buy that. And that's something Correct. that we really try to do in God Country. Does that work? <laughs> <laughs> That's all I have, though. I was kind of hoping you were going to pick it up. <laughs> oh, no. I, I'm, I'm totally going to follow your lead. I, I'm not going to leave you hanging, though. But, yeah, and I think that's generally how stories like this work. And, you know, we've seen them through all these other big, you know, sci-fi, fantasy, what have you, is that, yes, there is a larger world. And, of course, you have to touch on that just for the, you know, for the sake of scope. But it's a human story. And, you know, that sounds very cliche, but that's how you connect, because if it goes too far in one direction, I mean, yeah, people will maybe enjoy it, but there's nothing to grasp onto. There's nothing to connect to. And, you know, like I said, in at least this first issue, you do that very well. It immediately gives you something that you can relate to. So that way, when it does go into the other direction, you now have something to base it on. Because, you know, if you start out with this very large in life story, it's just past your, you know, wrong belief. Because then you're like, all right, you know, I've seen this in other comics. and it, Right, right, right. Yeah, you know, I wanted to do something that was, like, I'm a big fan of Thor comics, always have been. In Thor comics, whenever Thor interacts with, like, everyday folks, right, not just like superheroes, just like normal, everyday folks, we're kind of looking at those people through Thor's eyes, right. or from his point of view, above them, right? I really wanted to do a book that was, you as the audience are standing on the ground with the normal people looking up at these big things. And we learn about the empire and about Jedi's through Luke's eyes as he learns about them. Right. But really in God country, you're just going to be as baffled and as confused as these like West Texas, just simple, good people. I mean, not that you're going to be confused for the entire thing, but I mean, again, they never get over it. How would you? 
right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, how would I you? I mean, I'm pretty sure there'd probably be, like, a lot of swearing, maybe even soiling yourself, and especially where, you know, in an area like that, you know, I'd imagine it's probably, you know, very rural, and no doubt probably very conservative, too. So, of course, you're thinking of something like that, it would be, like, you know, something that would probably be like, holy shit, this is, like, revelation happening in real time. To touch on that, that was the thing that was really important to me as well, because that's something that never really gets talked about in, like, your Thor books and stuff like that. Which is this idea of, well, well, wait, hold on. If Thor is real, is Jesus real? Like, where does Buddha fit in if Thor is real? Like, how right. do, in the Marvel world, how is how are there still Baptist churches? How, right? I mean, <laughs> they must just be blind to it. And by that, I just mean they must just be completely unaccepting of Thor's idea of gods, right? And so that was something I really some of the funnest moments for me as the writer were those moments, those kind of quiet moments, which there's not that many of, uh, um, <laughs> those kind of quiet moments where they get to kind of talk about those very things. Like, you know, when you're in trouble and you, and you start praying, well, who are you praying to now that there's someone who's calling themselves a God on your front porch? Like, what are you, who are you talking to? And at that point, do you pray anymore for fear of who answers them? (laughs) (laughs) You know, because like, if this is God, no, thank you. Like, I don't want anything to do with any of that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, because your entire faith system, I mean, I'm sure there's probably a few who would maybe kind of go that way of saying, okay, these are clearly like false gods, or this may even, you know, in their minds, like, okay, this is clearly the work of the devil because this is nothing that we know of. Right. You know, know, there's got to be a few who, like you said, like, I'm pretty sure, like, you know, you obviously look at everything you know, and, you know, a lot of it, of course, planted in possibly dogma, but yet... What would you even think to that? What would you even say to that? And, you know, I even now, of course, I grew up in a very uh, Christian household. I kind of go back and forth as to what I believe. But, you know, even me, like, if I saw something like that, I was like, all right, wait, hold on. What's going on? Right. Well, it would change (laughs) everything that you know, right? I mean, it would change everything that you believe in. But at the same time, I mean, you know, they're kind of stuck in this place where they can't be that scared of it. Because at least in the beginning, it's kind of only done good things right it's kind of, it's brought their it's brought their dad back like dad's back you know but it doesn't last for very long <laughs> and i'm sure there, there may be a point you know just thinking about if this were happening in real time that yeah you'd be glad but then after that you'd have to have questions you'd have to ask yourself okay what is going on here and you know obviously with the family aspect like you said you're so happy that this is happening but yeah at what price yeah well that's where our series tagline for the book is salvation is a double-edged sword which if you've read the book means about nine different things (laughs) depending on how you think about it but yeah you pray and you pray and you pray for someone to come and save your family and then they do but it kind of ends up not being the god you prayed to (laughs) the one that you wanted (laughs) that's a hell of a faustian deal right there (laughs) no shit yeah so Uh-huh. I, I fear that if I keep talking about it, I'm going to start spoiling things. No, that's all right. But no, we won't do that. But I guess we should probably reiterate uh, when this is coming out and where people can get this book. Because, again, I, I think everybody needs to read this because it's amazing. Oh, well, thank you so much, man. It comes out on January 
11th. So it's really easy. It's issue one on 111. Ooh. Ooh, yeah, right? <laughs> it's almost like I planned it, which I did not. <laughs> uh, that's just the day they gave me. And yeah, everyone can follow me at, at Don Cates, D O N C A T E S, because I'm a nut job about talking about it and uh, putting up art from it and all that kind of stuff. And um, probably starting. I don't know, pretty soon here, we'll probably start opening up for the, the audience to write into us, you know, and talk to us and all, all that kind of stuff. So we'll do that. Well, I guess if, the, if this is coming out in January, then uh, people can write to us at the comic at godcountrycomic at gmail.com. Very cool. I hope everybody else checks out your other works, too. And you have to come back on because now it's like, okay, now that I have someone to go toe-to-toe with as far as Star Wars goes. See, now it's like... (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I'm such an amateur at it. I have a lot of big opinions, but they're all vastly uh, uninformed and dumb. So <laughs> no, well, so are mine at this point because you know every time, and that's you know what is the appeal of those types of stories, and you know bringing it back to God of Country, which is why I'm so excited for it because you know every time I think I have this solid opinion of how I feel about everything, I'll rewatch it again and go, damn it, I didn't think about that. Right? Yeah. Well, I look forward to our next podcast where we can shout our dumb opinions at each other. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, <laughs> for the. Well, that'll do. <laughs> I can't even get through the outro. <laughs> All right, you know what? We'll see you next issue. Have a good one. Thank you for listening to Adrian Has Issues. Please be sure to visit adrianhasissues.com to stream or download our other great episodes. Like us on Facebook at Adrian Has Issues, on Instagram at Adrian Has Issues Pod, and follow us on Twitter at Adrian Has Issues. You can also find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and on the Satchel Podcast app, available on iOS and Android. Adrian Has Issues is a proud member of the Nerd Sloth Network, home to such great podcasts as Nerds on Tap, Cinefreak Critique, and Saturday Morning Cartoon Boom. Visit them at nerdsloth.com. <laughs>